I want to first of all say thank you to Mrs. Julie Tennant and the Reverend Danny Key and the seminary singers. You have blessed me. May I be a blessing to others. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. Amen. Do you know what are the two most popular days of church attendance? What's number one? Easter. Oh, this is a good group. This is a very good group. What's the reason for the numbers here? Inactive and less active church members who are on the rolls, they show up in order to make a token appearance. However, Easter is not typically a day when a large number of the unchurched show up. Those additional folk who show up on Easter are by and large nominal Christians. What's number two? Christmas. Boy, this is, this is a great group. Look at this. I'm telling you. What's the reason for the numbers here? More unchurched people attend. Many of the unchurched are attracted to the traditions of Christmas, particularly those that play out in Christmas Eve services. From an evangelistic perspective, Christmas Eve services may be the most important services of the Christian calendar, according to Tom Rayner. Ah, but what about the service after Easter? Well, <laughs> it's usually smaller, much smaller, than either Easter or Christmas, but that's okay. Why? Because it's the time, wait for it now, when the real Christians show up. I think I have found my audience. <laughs> Our text, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, raises a major question for us this morning in terms of its ordering. So when does Easter come before Good Friday? It comes before Good Friday for all those who are already Christians, who are, to use the language of John Wesley, real, true, proper, scriptural Christians, who are already justified and born of God, and who want to go deeper, much deeper, into serious Christian discipleship. Easter comes before Good Friday for all those who desire nothing less than the mind that was and is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Consider once again Paul's order in our text this morning. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining 
to the resurrection of the dead. Did you catch that? First, it's resurrection. Then, it's becoming like Christ in suffering and death. And then, it's resurrection again. It's Easter, Good Friday, and back to Easter. I love it. It's an absolutely wonderful order. For what? For serious, and I do mean serious, Christian discipleship. To be sure, Paul has already told us in the immediately preceding verses that he counts all things loss, all things empty and vacated, so that he can be found in Christ. Listen to the apostles' words. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul knows in the very depths of his soul, blasphemer though he once was, that he is now nothing less than the beloved. Yes, the beloved of God. He knows in his heart that Christ died for him, even him, and saved him from the law of sin and death. He is a man, therefore, who has been set free to enjoy the greatest liberty of all, even the freedom to love God, unfettered by the drag of sin, and to love his neighbor as himself, now that's freedom, real gospel freedom. It is precisely this person, so wonderfully redeemed, who wants to know Christ in a new way, more deeply in his suffering. In other words, knowing that we are already the beloved, the very children of God, we can be open to participating in the sufferings of Christ with abandon. Now, we evangelicals, we know how to bring people into church. Mission and evangelism have always been our strong suits. However, and of course, present company excluded, to preach evangelistic sermons in one form or another, week in and week out, to professing Christians who want to know Christ in deeper and richer ways is nothing less than pastoral malpractice. One reason why preaching evangelistic sermons week in and week out to professing Christians is pastoral negligence is because suffering, deep suffering, broad and wide, painful and downright annoying at times, is already knocking on the door. It awaits all 
serious disciples of Jesus Christ. Christians are not exempt from the human condition, and the world, the flesh, and the devil are still there. They have not gone away, and the carnal nature of those who are born of God can itself become the occasion of temptation. As John Wesley put it on one occasion, sin remains, but it does not reign in the hearts of the children of God. Furthermore, considering this in a different way, it is a truism well attested in the Gospels, bad things happen to good people, even to Jesus, the Messiah. Being the Son of God did not exempt him from the tragedies of life. Being innocent did not free him from the human condition. Being holy did not spare him from emotional pain and even anguish. In his own day, John Wesley expressed the suffering of the children of God in his sermon, heaviness through manifold temptations. Such belabored pain is in store for all those who remain faithful to Jesus Christ our Lord. To be sure, it is one thing to become a Christian, it is quite another thing to remain a Christian, especially in an evil age. In fact, the suffering of the faithful will be so great and so painful at times that Paul, in our text, has to begin with the power of the resurrection. Otherwise, we might immediately be overwhelmed by the specter of what trouble lies ahead. As a consequence, we might turn away in either dread or fear. In other words, it is precisely as the children of God those who are already justified, already accepted, those who know that they are the chosen, who have tasted of the powers of eternity, who can freely and even with joy participate in Christ's sufferings, as Paul writes, even becoming like him in his death. But if we forsake Paul's good order here, put in place for the inculcation of the graces that lead to a mature Christian faith, and if we turn around and now make participation in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, the basis upon which we will be forgiven, made right in God's sight, then this too would be spiritual malpractice a blunder of the highest order. But our focus this morning is not on sinners coming to Christ, but on Christians being formed in the processes of sanctification in order to grow deeper in the Lord, to know Christ more intimately in new groundbreaking ways. In other words, those who are already holy must become holier at first by degrees of grace, and then in a flush of sanctifying graces on the way to entire sanctification. Like Paul, 
They seek to know Christ in new and richer ways by participating in Christ's sufferings and becoming like him in his death. Consider then the pain and the anguish of Jesus Christ for a moment. He came into the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and they did not receive him. He was denied by his own disciple, not once or twice, which would have been bad enough, but three times. Moreover, Christ was miserably beaten, taunted mercilessly, and crucified by Roman soldiers. And he suffered the disgrace of public execution, half naked, and in abject and wrenching pain. He was denigrated by comfortable religious leaders who were witnessing the spectacle of execution. You know the account. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God? Then let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So let us ask ourselves a question this morning. Was there ever a person in all of human history who was ever more innocent than Jesus Christ and who therefore suffered more unjustly than he? And so, if we bring forward the sufferings of Christ first as a path of reform and acceptance to those sinners who do not yet know the power of his resurrection, and we then teach them that this is the way forward now, walk in it, this is what it means to be saved, to be redeemed, to be a Christian, then they are likely to turn away, and to turn away quite quickly, I might add, they will give new meaning to the word skedaddle. However, if we bring forward the sufferings of Christ to sinners, not as a demand, but as the manifestation of the love of God that cannot be defeated, then their stony hearts of unbelief may just melt away knowing how deeply, how richly, God loves them in Jesus Christ. If sinners can just get a glimpse to what extent, to what depth, the divine love is willing to go to find them in their lostness, in their blasted alienation and estrangement from God, to communicate to them in the most powerful way imaginable that they too, are the beloved, the cherished of the Lord, that Christ suffered and died for them, even them, then they may be open to receive the precious gift of God's presence in their hearts. 
Here is suffering then, not as a demand to make yourself right with God, not as a requirement to earn a seat in the celestial city. Rather, here is suffering as a window on how great, how broad, how wide, how deep the love of God is that is manifested in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so everything in its proper place. Paul, as a child of God who was already renewed and forgiven, wants to know Christ in a new way by participating in his sufferings and by becoming like him in his death. In short, Paul wants to lay out the path of serious Christian discipleship for real, true, proper, scriptural Christians. Once again, I have found my audience. Now watch this. Although salvation, as the forgiveness of sins and the renewal of our nature is a free gift, nevertheless, the cost of Christian discipleship is high. It is sky high, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer of the 20th century has reminded us. These are not contradictory statements. We need to wrap our minds around this gospel truth this morning. Again, it is one thing to become a Christian. It is quite another thing to remain a Christian, especially in the present evil age, a time of outright apostasy, an age chock full of lies. Accordingly, we must remember during these troubled times, not all who start the race will finish the race. And some indeed are falling away today. Many nominal Christians have already departed. They won't be coming back to the Easter services any longer. The cost of remaining a Christian was simply a price that they were no longer willing to pay. Some compromise the truth of the gospel outright. Others sell out slowly, gradually over time until one day they wake up and Jesus Christ is no longer their Lord. Jesus is no longer precious to them. He has become to them an alien, a stranger. Consider this. If Christ was persecuted by evil men and women of his day, then so will his disciples be today. If Jesus was slandered and ostracized, then so will his disciples be today. Those who refuse to sell out or to compromise. If Jesus was despised and rejected, then so will his disciples be today. Listen to the words of Jesus himself from the Gospel of John. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. 
That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So then, we need to think about suffering in new ways this morning. Not from the perspective of sinners who bear the fruit of their unholy lives in consequences that are clearly unavoidable, marked by the misery of sin, envy, greed, enslaving and degrading, yes, degrading lusts, along with prickly pride. There's no heaven in that. Both sinners and saints suffer, but they do so in remarkably different ways. For the saints, for those who know the power of the resurrection of Christ, suffering is something distinguished by ongoing grace, holiness, peace, and above all love, the holy love of God and neighbor. For the saints, suffering is not a sign of depravity. It's not the consequence of a wretched life, one out of control. It's not the mark that the universe somehow or other is out of whack or that Jesus Christ is no longer the king. It is not an indication of abandonment, of desertion, of forsakenness by God. Quite the contrary. Suffering is nothing less than an emblem a badge of the faithful, of those who walk carefully and closely with Jesus Christ and who therefore enjoy an intimacy with the Savior hitherto unimagined. The church, the body of Christ in the world, is indeed being persecuted today. We need not create any artificial suffering the stuff of which some silly Lenten promises are made. If we are faithful to Jesus Christ, then real suffering, not concocted suffering, awaits us all. It will come. It has our names on it. Christians have been and continue to be slaughtered in Sudan, which divided as a country north and south in 2011. Christians are currently being persecuted in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia, in Turkey, and in the southern and eastern parts of Ethiopia. Christians are dying today in Nigeria for their witness to Jesus Christ, which the American mainstream media, by the way, is not reporting. Christians are being persecuted in China, and even house churches are feeling the pressures of the communist dictators. Now, in light of all of this righteous suffering, Christians in North America hardly have it bad at all. We are simply called bigots, misanthropes, and then we are, then we are ridiculed, mocked, and ostracized. Boy, are we ostracized. In so many cultural venues in which good has been declared to be evil, 
and evil has been declared to be good in our morally inverted, topsy-turvy world. Ah, but do not be deceived by all the smoke and mirrors. God is not mocked. For what a person sows, that they shall also reap. Again, it is one thing to suffer as a troubled sinner. It is quite another thing to suffer as a faithful and dear disciple of Jesus Christ on the other side of the new birth. We need to mark this difference and to mark it well. Christian suffering in the face of evil, even hatred today, says in effect, we shall not respond in kind. We will bear this burden. We will not abandon Christ. We will not sell out. We will not be conformed to this world. We will not go tit for tat. We shall not demand an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. With the coming of Jesus Christ, those days are over. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it so well. An eye for an eye will leave everyone blind. Rather, as our master Jesus has taught us so well, we will turn the other cheek and go the second mile. And if someone asks for our shirt, we will give them our coat as well for something far, far greater is here. We shall not overcome hatred with more hatred. That's the script of the world. That's the narrative of our culture. We shall overcome hatred with the glorious power of the suffering, humble love of Jesus Christ. Though we will seek justice in all our labors, of course, we will not seek condemnation and self-righteous judgment, but we will seek the sweet and savory justice of reconciliation. Yes, reconciliation, where the chasm of alienation and difference will be crossed over in love and the other will be embraced and welcomed as a neighbor. The holy love of Jesus Christ, known richly in suffering, known deeply in pain and in anguish, is far greater, more powerful than any evil we may ever encounter. By remaining faithful, we know Christ in a new way. We become miracle of miracles, something that we could have hardly imagined. We become beautiful as Christ is beautiful, a beauty that the world cannot fathom. Indeed, there never has been, nor will there ever be, a greater power manifested to the world than the humble, sacrificial, suffering love of Jesus Christ at Golgotha. And as I have said in this pulpit before, and so I say it again, Nails could not destroy it. Taunting could not weaken it. Hatred could not overcome it. Again, the cross 
is not a symbol of darkness, but of light. Yes, light. It is the light of God's suffering holy love casting out the darkness of hatred and evil. The cross is not an emblem of defeat, but of victory. It is the victory of humble, sacrificial love triumphing over every imaginable hatred and evil. Let me tell you a little story. I was sitting where you are. Well, it's been a while now. <laughs> uh, this, this, this goes back a long time. And this was the sermon I heard that morning. Nothing special about you. Nothing special about you. Nothing special about you. And then, you know, after this nice three-point sermon, the pastor, the preacher, sat down. Okay, I get it. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. But why preach yet another evangelistic sermon in Estes Chapel to publicly professing Christians? Oh, I know there are some still struggling under the power and dominion of sin, but there are also saints among us as well. I know. I've actually met them. I've spoken with them. I know their names. And they are such, and they have been such a blessing to me. Their dear, dear lives are filled with the fragrance of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I think the preacher sat down too early, too soon that morning. He should have continued preaching. Yes, we are all sinners in need of God's grace, but God did not leave us in our sins, but he has set us free by a real Savior, a genuine Redeemer, Jesus Christ the Lord. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, real liberty indeed. And there are so many people here this morning who can attest to this precious gospel truth. And so, let's go forward. The preacher that morning should have pressed on to take up what Jesus said about those who follow him in obedience, the obedience of faith, about those who want to love him in unabashed suffering, just like the Apostle Paul. What did Jesus say? about his followers, he exclaimed, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I began with the Apostle Paul, and so now I close with the Apostle Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, 
For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, my brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged. Please be encouraged. And remember this. Yes, remember this as you suffer at the hands of this vulgar, divisive, and self-absorbed age, an age that is passing away. God bats last, and God is a slugger. <laughs>